have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to the end of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. We're actually going to pick up the last verses of chapter 49 and then the rest of chapter 50. As we come here to the last scene uh, or set of scenes in Genesis, one of the things that I, I hope you've picked up all along the way since we started working our way through Genesis Memorial Day last year uh, is that this book really is, and I'll say this again, about God. God's the main actor. I've tried to emphasize that even in the titles of these sermons throughout our time in it. Um, it's God from first to last, our good and gracious God, showing us how good and gracious he is to us as his people, continuing to pursue us. And this God who is good and gracious, he never changes uh, from the Old Testament to the New, from Genesis to Revelation and beyond. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God who was and is and is to come. I trust we'll see all that this morning, but in order to see it, we need the Holy Spirit's help. Let's ask him for his help, would you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we bless you for your kindness to us as your people, that you condescend, that you step down from the heavens. And in the ministry of the word, when we're gathered, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, you declare your word to us. We do believe, Lord, that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. So, Holy Spirit, we pray, come, open our eyes of faith this morning that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 29. Then Jacob commanded them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And they made mourning for his father seven days. 
When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizarim and is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and your, their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many, evil should be, many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here in this book of beginnings, this, this first book of the Bible, I think it's good to step back for a moment and just think about where we've been and what we've seen throughout. You know, when, we, when the book began... The book began with God. Actually, the book begins, but God already is. That, I think that's the import of the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That suggests that before there's a beginning, God is. God is there before the beginning. He was. The book ends, as we just read, chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. God will visit you and bring you up out of the land of Egypt. God will surely visit you telling us that, in fact, there's a, there's a beginning, and God's there in the beginning, and the book ends, but God's going to be there after the end. And in between God in the beginning and God at the end, God at the first and God at the last, everything that happens through the 50 chapters of this first book of the Bible is actually shaped by God being the main actor, whether it's the creation of the world, or whether it's the destruction of the world in Noah's time, or, or the renewal of the world, whether it's the table of the nations and the spreading out from Babel, whether it's the election of one man, Abraham, and through his family, the covenant promises are extended, whether it's Jacob, who will later be renamed Israel, who's one man, and he goes off to foreign parts, but when he ends up coming back to the land and heading to Egypt, this one man's become 70, 
And as we saw last Sunday night in Numbers, 70 will become 600,000 fighting men, maybe 2 to 3 million people all along the way. From first to last, God is at work. God is the main actor. And as I've already suggested to you, that's true not just here in Genesis. Yes, God is there and before the beginning, and he's there after the end, and he's there all along the way. But that's not true just for Genesis. It's also true for Deuteronomy. It's true for 1 Samuel. It's true for the Psalms. It's true for Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's true for the Gospels. It's true for Paul's letters. It's true for Revelation. The entire Bible is trying to tell you you're not the main actor, but God is. This God who is present from first to last, he's the main actor. That's, that's the point of the first book. You'll see it in the last book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible in chapter 1, God says this. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The entire Bible is about God and about God's ways with his world and ultimately God's ways with his people. Now, if we've missed this all along the way, we have one last shot here in Genesis to get this. God's trying to tell us here. He started our stories. He's with us in the beginnings. We were with him in our mother's wombs as he's knitting us together. He's with us in the midst of our stories, and he's with us at the very end. God's with us in our dying. As we come to our dying day and we stand on the edge of that dark river, God is there ready to carry us through to get us to the celestial city so that we might see him face to face. And this God who has been with his people, with you, not just collectively, but individually, God with you is the same God who always has been before time began. He's the God who's been with you all of your days. He is the God who will take you to himself. And he is the God who will bring this story to a conclusion and raise you from the dead. He is your God and he's good and he's gracious. That's what God wants you to get. When you walk away from the book of Genesis, what you need to know, not in your head, but in your heart and in your bones, is your God is good and gracious and he does not change. He's the God who was and is and is to come. As I say, you see that here, particularly in the God who was, this God who's with us in our dying as we, our reading began, Jacob has just finished blessing his sons, which we saw last time. He's blessed the 12 sons of Israel. And Moses tells us that he moves immediately from that to giving instructions to all the brothers. Now, he's given the instructions to Joseph, but now he gives, them, gives these same instructions to all of his sons. You see it, chapter 49, verse 29. I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury with me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah's wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Now, what is this about? Right, why, why is he going on and on and on? about this is the field and the cave that, I, that was bought from the Hittites, from Ephron the Hittites, three or four times. 
in just a few verses, he tells you that. Well, it's not simply an identification marker. Jacob's saying something really important about why he wants to be buried back at Machpelah. He's telling his sons, I have a stake in the promised land too. That's my stake. I want to be buried there. Remember that when Abraham bought that field and bought that cave back in Genesis 23, we noted at the time how important that was. Abraham had been a wanderer in the promised land. He, he was wondering whether God was going to keep his promises that he would be a great nation. To be a great nation, you need children and you need land. Well, in Genesis 21, he got the child of promise, Isaac. But he still didn't have a permanent spot in the land. So Genesis 23, Abraham buys this field in the cave from Ephron the Hittite. And it was his stake in the promised land. But it wasn't simply a stake in, in an area of 200 miles worth of dirt, Palestine. That, that wasn't the thing. It was a stake in the city to come. It was proof to Abraham that God was going to keep his promises, that he would inherit the entire world, he and his children after him, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was proof, that cave, that field, that God was a covenant God, a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. And Jacob stresses to his sons, I want to be buried there because I have a stake in the promised land too. I have a stake in that holy city to come. And the testimony and the witness that this is in fact the case is I want to be buried where Abraham's buried. So in saying this, he's saying, God, you're the God who was, you're the God in my dying, and you are keeping your promises even in my dying, even in my burial. You're keeping your promises. There's also an element of sentiment here, though. Because he lists Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah. I think that's important. He wants to be buried where his mama's been buried. Now, why is that important? Do you remember in Genesis 27 when, when Rebekah sends him on the run? He says, go to, my go to my brother Laban, your uncle. When things calm down with Esau, I'll call you back home. 20 years pass. Rebekah never calls him back home. In fact, in those 20 years between Jacob going to Laban and, and Jacob running from Laban, Rebekah dies. Jacob never gets to say goodbye, never gets to, to say anything, never gets to see his mother again. I think in a very real sense, when he's telling his sons, I want to be buried back there. Yes, I want my stake in the promised land. I want to be buried with my mother. I want to be buried with my father. I want to be buried with Leah. Isn't that important? Leah, the unloved wife. Yes, the mother of six of his children. And yet someone who always felt in competition with the woman that he truly loved, Rachel, and yet Rachel was buried at Bethlehem. Jacob doesn't say, bury me with Rachel. What does he say? Bury me with Leah. And even here, I think there's a sense of reconciliation. Reconciliation with his mother, his father. Reconciliation with his unloved wife. I want to be buried there. Who's at work here? God is. Even in Jacob's dying, as he gives these final instructions to his sons, He's signaling the work that God has been doing in his heart. I have a stake in the promised land. I have a stake in the holy city. I have a stake in this reconciliation. God is making all things new. He's starting with me. And then you have this powerful, powerful scene. Chapter 49, verse 23. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him. 
and kiss him. Now, some of you have done that. You have been privileged to be with a parent or another loved one as they are dying. And as they close their eyes and they enter into the presence of Jesus, you've held their hand. You've wept with them. I mean, you know how powerful this is. But why does Moses record this? Is it simply to give us an affecting scene? That would be enough. I think it's something more. Because what did God promise Jacob 17 years before? Remember, at the end of chapter 45, Jacob hears the reports from his sons. Joseph's alive. And he says, I will go and see my son. But if he's worried about it at all, at the beginning of chapter 46, God comes to him and God says, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And here you are, four chapters later. Who's there? Weeping over him, closing his eyes. Who's the last face he sees? Joseph's. That's a small fulfillment. But it has to be important for Israel's family that the God who promised Joseph would close his eyes is the God who keeps his promises. Here's the sign. Joseph's there. He's weeping over his father. He's leading in this whole process of, of carrying out the wishes of this dying and now dead patriarch. And what happens after this, and the description that extends to verse 13 of chapter 50 is the funeral procession and all the lamentation and the grief. And there's, there's much here, and I don't have time to unpack it. But let me just say this. Sometimes we think when, when our loved ones die that we have to keep this stiff upper lip that's wrong for us to grieve, it's wrong for us to weep. Friends, that's not biblical. That's stoic. It's drawn from Greek philosophy that somehow we have to keep this, this kind of medium of emotions, not too high, not too low. That's not what the Bible says at all. What you have here is an amazing process of lamentation and grief. Friends, if, if, jo if Joseph weeps and grieves over his father's dying, goodness, if Jesus weeps at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, you can weep. And you can grieve when your loved one passes away as they go through this process of dying. It's right, it's biblical, because this dying and death, it's unnatural. This is not the way God intended the world to be. The rending apart of relationship, the rending apart of body and soul, not what God intended in the original, in the Garden of Eden. It's a result ultimately of sin entering the world, and it's right for us to grieve what sin has done to our world. And in the midst of our grieving, as it was for Joseph and his brothers, God is there. The God who was in the beginning, the God who's been with the patriarchs all along the way, the God who is with Jacob and is running away and is coming back, the God who's with him in, in Egypt is God in his dying. And we can trust him. We can rest our hearts in him. We can rest our hearts in him when we come to our dying. Some of you aren't afraid to die, but you are afraid of the process of dying. You've seen it in your loved ones. You've seen it in your friends. Some have had difficult, difficult dying processes. It's right to feel that way in the sense that it's, it's a hard, hard thing to die. But we take our fears and our hearts to this God, the God who was with us before we were even a gleam in our parents' eyes, 
who was with us when our, when our bodies were knit together in our mother's wombs, this God who's been with us all the way, this God will be with you even when you come to your dying. And you go through that hard process, and it may be difficult and hard and sad, but your God is with you. As he was with Jacob, so he is with you. This is your God. He is good and gracious. He's the God who was. He's the God who is. This God who's with us in our dying, he's also with us in our living. Their father is dead. Their father is buried. They've come back to Egypt, and Joseph's brothers begin to worry. What are they worried about? I think they're worried about what they would do if they were in Joseph's shoes. So what do they do about it? Chapter 50, verse 16. So they send a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, notice what they're doing here. How, how much it reflects their fear of, of Joseph, their desire to make a good impression. What are they doing? They send a messenger. By that messenger, they send a message. They make an appeal to Joseph, an appeal in the name of their father. This message, I think, was concocted. I don't think their father actually told them to do this. But they appeal in all of this, trying to somehow gain Joseph's favor. And then once the messenger has come and delivered the message, they themselves show up and they fall at Joseph's feet and they offer themselves as slaves to him. Is it any wonder that Joseph weeps? Have you ever wondered why he weeps? I think, I think, here's why I think he's weeping. I think Joseph's weeping because even after 17 years, his brothers don't really know him or trust him. He told them in chapter 45, you meant evil. God meant it for good. I will care for you. I'm going to keep you alive. For 17 years, he's been doing this, treating them kindly, being gracious to them. And still they hold this bitterness in their heart so that they don't actually trust him. Friends, I know how hard it is. You do too. To, to exert kindness and to try to serve others and bless others. And they're suspicious of you and they're looking through you and they're sure that you're trying to do, you, you're trying to do them harm. That's what Joseph is, that's why he weeps. It broke his heart. It breaks your heart when it happens to you, doesn't it? It certainly breaks mine. That's why he weeps. And out of that weeping, he once again doesn't, doesn't blast them. What does he do? He reminds them. Verse 19, he reminds them of what's true. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and for your little ones. There's two things to notice here. The first is his question: Am I in the place of God? Why does he say that? He's reminding them that God is the one who has ultimate judgment. We've already professed that using the catechism questions for the New City Catechism. God is the one who will ultimately judge. He will, he will meet out ultimate judgment. Joseph said, I'm not in God's place. I'm not in God's place to, to judge in this situation. Your condemnation will come upon you if you're not truly repentant at the end of the age. I'm not in the place of God. But the second here is, 
thing to notice is Joseph's perspective. Namely, you intended evil. He doesn't back away from that. What you did was evil. When you sold me into slavery and left me for dead, that was evil. When I got thrown into jail because Mrs. Potiphar trumped up a rape charge, that was evil. What happened to me over 13 years, it was evil. And you meant it to be so. He doesn't let him off the hook. But he recognizes this divine concurrence that even when out of their own free choices, they meant evil, God was able to work and he meant it for good. Namely, the salvation of Israel. That's his perspective. In other words, God isn't just the God who was, who acted in times gone by. He's the God who is. He's the one in the midst of our living. And he is at work even in our sorrows and even in our difficulty to bring about salvation, to bring about life, to bring about good. Now listen, some of you have done evil. You have sinned against others. You've, you've followed your own pride, your own self-ambition, whatever it may be. You've, you've given in to lust or you've given in to gossip or slander, whatever it may be. You've done evil or perhaps evil has been done to you. Others have done those very things to you. And you meant evil, or they meant evil. But the God who is hasn't left you simply in the power of your evil or others' evil. The God who is, the God in our living, is able to take that evil and actually work it together by virtue of a synergy. His purposes played out in his world to accomplish salvation. We don't always know how that is. We don't always see it in the minute. But that is true. Why is it true? It's because of who your God is. Your God's not some kind of localized, limited deity who only acts when you ask him to act. You know, your God is way bigger than that. Your God is the one who called worlds into existence, who carved out the Grand Canyon with his pinky, the one who flung stars into space. That's who your God is. Before time began, God was. And this God who was is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. And he's kept his promises all along the way throughout not just Bible history, but human history and your history. That's who your God is. And this God who can fling worlds into existence and govern all his creatures and all their actions can certainly make sure that the evil you do or that has been done to you actually works for your salvation. That's who your God is. He's the God in the midst of our living but this God who was and this God who is, he is the God who is to come. He's the God of our futures. One of the things you have to know about the very end of the book of Genesis, verses 22 to 25, uh, or 22 to 26, excuse me, um, is that six years have passed from the scene in which, Je in which Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and these final verses, 60 years have passed. Joseph has reached the ideal age in the mind of the Egyptian uh, 110 years. And that's stressed. Uh, verse 22 notes his age. Verse 26 notes his age. It bookends everything that goes before. It's proof, at least in the Egyptian mind, that Joseph is blessed, that he has lived a full life. Not only this, he's actually seen three generations of Ephraim's children, two generations of Manasseh's children. But he's at the end of his life, and Joseph knows he is dying. And he too gives concluding instructions of what's supposed to happen to him and his body. Did you see it? Chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. What's Joseph saying? 
He's saying this God who was in times gone by, this God who is and has been active in their lives, is the God of the future. Long after Joseph and his brothers are gone, long after their children and grandchildren are gone, long after that, God will surely visit Israel. And when he does, you better tell your posterity, take my bones with you. Now, here's the cool thing. I love the way the Bible works. In Exodus, Moses makes sure, if you have those words hanging in your head and your ears, he makes sure to say, they do it, and God does it. In Exodus chapter 4, and verse 31, Moses writes this, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Twice, Joseph says, the Lord's going to visit you. The Lord's going to visit you. 350 years later, Moses writes in Exodus 4, the Lord visited. Just as Joseph had said. Joseph looked forward by faith and looked forward to the future and said, this God who was and who is, he's the one who is to come and he is the God of your future. And you can believe that the Lord will visit you. And guess what? They remembered. They remembered about Joseph's bones. As they're gathering everything up after the Passover has happened and they're trying to run out of Egypt, Moses notes this, Exodus 13, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones with you from here. So 350 years later, as they're gathering all their things in that aftermath of the angel of death, and they're gathering it all up, somebody says, hey, don't forget, Mo don't forget Joseph's bones. No, nope. Moses says, I got them, I got them. They're in the caravan. We've loaded them up. Forty years, they wander through the wilderness. And as the children of Israel are hearing these stories, sitting on the plains of Moab, which is described in the book of Numbers, perhaps they hear this and they say, yep, we know exactly. Hey, uh, Ishtar's family, you've, got, you've still got Joseph's bones back there, right? Yeah, we got them. Number A, 32941, we've got them. And when they cross in to the promised land, you know what they do? They bury Joseph's bones. Why is that important? Friends, listen. Sometimes we worry about, as we get older especially, we worry about our children and our grandchildren. And we wonder, is God going to be God to them? Is he going to care for them? Is he going to provide for them? Are they going to continue to follow in the truth? What this is telling you is, yes, the God who was in your past when you were converted, the God who's been carrying you all your days, he's the God of your future. And when you're long gone and you're in the presence of Jesus, you can entrust your future generations to this God of the future. The God who had his people remember Joseph's bones will surely remember the generations after you. But that's true not just of your family. The hardy souls in March 1965 who formed this church, there's a few of them still left. But there's many who've gone to their reward and they're in the presence of Jesus. But here we are, 55 years later, the God of the future, at least the future in 1965, has been with us all of these days. And if you were to go 55 years from now, there may be few, maybe William Thompson, who was born this week, who'll still be in this church, and they'll say, I remember those faithful souls who preached the gospel of Jesus to me, and here I am with my own children in this church. And if you go 55 years beyond that, and Jesus doesn't return, there will be those there yet, Lord willing, who are continuing to hold to this God who's come to them in Jesus Christ. Why can we believe that? Because your God is not just the God who was, 
And the God who is, he's the God who is to come. And he is the God of your future and the future of this church. It's his love, his grace, his goodness that will not let us go. It's his joy that pierces through the pain and enters into our sorrows and allows us to trace the rainbow through the rain. But not just for us and not just for the generations gone by, but the generations yet to come. And Joseph's bones, as they wandered through Israel, were proof. And here in a minute, as we have these men come and take vows and make promises and have hands laid on them, they're proof. God hasn't abandoned you. He is still with you. He will continue to carry you all the way home. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we bless you for your kindness that you've proven to be so faithful to your people through the generations as the God who was and is and is to come, the God of our dying, of our living, of our futures. Lord, we long for that day, that new heavens, new earth, that resurrection, when you will keep all of your promises perfectly and finally. Lord, we do pray that even now, we would trust that you will keep them because you have given us real and tangible signs, the word of God, the sacraments, officers in Christ's church. Lord, please continue to grant us faith, hope, love. But above all, grant us the greatest of these, which is love. The very love of God shed abroad in our hearts, the very steadfast love of our good and gracious God. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.